They're back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at jimmylovesfbomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code jimmylovesfbomb, they'll give you 10% off of your first order. jimmylovesfbomb.com. Want to enjoy a sweet cookie and still stay in ketosis? Two friends did just that with Keto Cookie. Christopher and Victor went on the ketogenic diet, lost fat, and felt amazing. But they wanted something sweet and convenient for their busy lifestyle. So they created Keto Cookie and now want to share this sweet satisfaction with you. Is this really keto? Low Carbers tested Keto Cookie with their glucose monitors and were amazed by the results. How is this possible? Keto Cookie is made with non-GMO almond flour, is naturally sweetened with erythritol and monk fruit extract, and has a healthy amount of grass-fed butter, coconut oil, and MCT oil to fuel your day. With less than 2 grams of net carbs, it's the perfect on-the-go snack to keep you energized and ready to inspire the world. Enjoy your chewy childhood favorites like chocolate chip and the cinnamony snickerdoodle, gluten-free, guilt-free, and bake-free. To discover more about Keto Cookie and how two friends are inspiring people to eat smarter but sweeter, visit KetoCookie.com and be sure to use the promo code LLVLC to receive 15% off your order. And follow them on Instagram for exclusive giveaways and specials at Keto cookie you are listening to keto talk with jimmy moore and the doc featuring veteran health podcaster jimmy moore and surprise arizona family physician dr adam nally they are here answering the most pressing questions about a low carb high fat ketogenic diet visit our website ketotalk.com And now, it's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Here's Jimmy and Adam. Hey, hey, guys. We're back here on episode 70 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. My name is Jimmy Moore, and I am the international best-selling author of Keto Clarity and the Ketogenic Cookbook and the soon-to-be-released The Keto Cure with my good buddy, my pal. He is Dr. Adam Nally. What's up, Adam? Well, hello there, Jimmy, and hello all of you Ketonians out there. I am excited to be with you today. Or should we say hello again? Because it's been like forever since we've done a a show where we're here. Uh, I guess last week's episode, we were sort of here, but we were on the low-carb cruise and uh, had a lot of great questions there. But back to our regular format today. Yes, I'm excited. Yes. So our website, you guys, is ketotalk.com. If you want to get all the full show notes for this and every single of the 70 episodes, it's hard to believe we've been doing this now about a year and a half now, Adam, and we're at 70 now. So ketotalk.com is where the website is. And if you want to engage with your fellow Ketonians, we have a Facebook uh, page, which while we were gone on the low carb cruise, Adam, uh, right before we left, we were at 10,000 members. You want to know how many members we have as of the recording of this? I didn't look. What's the number? 13,600. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That thing is growing like crazy. We're going to be at That's like 50,000 by the end of the year. So it's How cool. really crazy. And we got great moderators on there kind of keeping the peace. And uh, you can talk all about low carb, moderate protein, high fat diet to your heart's content. And if you're not hearing your questions answered here, there's a lot of really great collective wisdom out there from your fellow Ketonians. So definitely head on over to KetoTalkFB.com and uh, engage in the conversation. So uh, uh, we have been traveling quite a bit lately, uh, and so it's good to be back in the saddle. I got to tell you, when I got back from uh, after the low-carb cruise, Christine and I and my sister went to Vegas for a week uh, to have fun. Never did that before. We went and saw a lot of shows and and just had a good time. It was 100,000 degrees there, so uh, very familiar to you, that that humidity. (laughs) (laughs) Was was it humid there? Just the heat. It's it's a dry heat. We We tell people, if you come to Arizona or Las Vegas, just open up your oven turn it to 130 and stick your head in. That's that's what it's like. There's no humidity. It's just a dry heat. Uh, it was a dry heat. I, my nose actually bled the first day. That's how bad it oh, was. Wow. Yeah. I, and but anyway, I got better. But anywho, and I got like 20,000 uh, plus steps every single day I was in Vegas. So I guess that's pretty typical of New York City, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, whatever. You walk around everywhere and I've still got blisters on the bottoms of my heels from all the walking. <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) But that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So when I got home, the garden, I have a home garden uh, that we were able to plant. I know you got the whole aquaponics thing going, but our garden just exploded here in South Carolina. And we've got kale uh, coming literally out of our ears in the garden. It's It's pretty fascinating. That, that's that's great for kale chips. I'm, I'm already drooling. You know, you, oh. you bake those kale chips and you sprinkle salt and um, garlic salt on them and you bake them and it turns into a chip. And oh, my gosh, those are you got to try those if you haven't tried kale chips. yet. You know what I and actually you, did? I, I do love kale chips as well. And that's a great way to do it. You get that. You get that kind of crunch in the mouth. You like that sound effect. Uh, gotta love that. Gotta know, love right? it. And it's good. But I decided, uh, and, and the doc's going to love me for this one, you guys. I decided after I cooked up uh, some bacon for Christine, the excess bacon grease, I just threw that kale right into the pan. It literally sounds like popcorn when you stick it in there because of all the water that's in the kale and that hot grease. But it, it shrinks down and it gets this nice little toasted thing and it crisps up just like kale chips. Have you ever that's tried like- that? I have not, but I, but if I understand correctly, that's that's the start of what they refer to in the South as greens. Is that right? It's kale and bacon. <laughs> oh, it doesn't grease get nasty though. See, greens no, can not, be kind of like real slimy and gross. And no, this crisps up. I actually did this a Periscope video with Christine, uh, or I put it on Instagram. I, I do a lot of things on social media, and so, but I put it on there, and Christine went. <laughs> it was she. She loved it, man. <laughs> but it's good. Got to take care great. of my baby girl, you know. So. There it is. Bacon and kale. You got to love that. And all my chickens are now laying those uh, young ones that we had purchased. They're now laying. So we're getting about maybe eight or so eggs out of the dozen that we own now. So that's pretty good. Congratulations. That's awesome. We just had we had seven baby chicks born and a baby duck. So this has been an interesting week. And so we we had some we've had some chickens roosting as well. So we we hatched out some of ours to to expand our flock. There you go. Yeah. That's the way to do it. But it's always nice when you start producing eggs. You can never beat that. Yes, the real eggs. <laughs> well, speaking of bacon, there was this uh, news article that came out while we were away. This diet guru lost 20 pounds eating two pounds of bacon 
per day. I thought you ate a lot of bacon back in the day when you did the pound of bacon with, uh, what was it, your eggs. Uh, but this guy, he purposely ate two pounds of bacon per day to show, you know, it's not the bacon, you guys. It's not the fat that's uh, harming you. So his name is Dan Quibble. I actually know him. I met him at a book signing I did a couple of years ago uh, in in uh, Canada. And so in October 2015, he lost almost 20 pounds eating two pounds of bacon every single day. He was cooking up so much of the stuff that he was downing shots of bacon grease because he didn't know what else to do with it. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting that here, and he's a very uh, big fan of the ketogenic diet, Dan is, uh, and his doctor, as you can imagine, was quite shocked at this aggressive take on a high-fat, low-carb diet. <laughs> And she said at least five or six times, I don't know what to say, except keep doing this. It's, a, it, it, it's more <laughs> proof positive that, you know what, if you make a change in your diet that goes against every single conventional wisdom that the medical community tells you to do and it gets results, they can't help but pay attention to what you're doing. Oh, exactly. It's, it's, you know, when, when you start doing stuff and then all of a sudden it, things are changing, you, you, you have to take note and, and, some people take note well and others take note mentally. And, and uh, the fact that his doc had said, keep going, that's great. Yeah. So he has a, a Facebook page that he created called The Bacon Experiment, if you're interested in following Dan. And like I said, I know Dan personally. I've met him in person. And uh, he's he's pretty awesome. I, I think it's pretty neat the way he's taken this whole thing with bacon and um, you know, made it into something and, and kind of put a little bit of uh, the mystique about the saturated fat harming you, you know, kind of uh, into proper perspective. So uh, kudos to you, Dan, for a job well done getting featured on this website called Extra Crispy. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. You know, my son actually was inspired by Dan. Oh, um, good. You know, I, I've been I've been doing low carb diets for years and my son said, Dad, I, I don't want to do this. He actually saw me one day looking at Dan's website yes. or on his Facebook page. And he said, Dad, can I do it that I way? Do that. And so <laughs> I want to do that. So it, it, Dan actually inspired my son and he lost 52 pounds in 48 days. Now, Mike, Michael modified, you know, that that approach a little bit he added pepperoni and and hot dogs because he wanted to have a little variety of those count as bacon (laughs) they do they do but but my son literally lost 52 pounds in 48 days um using this approach and was inspired by dan so i hats off to dan i appreciate it he he's inspired my family yeah you gave a rousing talk on the low carb cruise where you shared that story about your son so i thought that was really neat Oh, yeah. And why am I not surprised that a Nally is eating bacon to lose weight? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, special thank you to Maria, Zachary, Jana, Andy, Patrick, Deb. Deb says, thank you for changing my life and keeping me focused. Many high fives and butt bumps. Okay. Butt bumps. Boom. Uh, Dietitian Cat Eileen. Eileen says, you guys are awesome. I've learned so much and thoroughly enjoy listening to your fun banter during my walks. Keep up the good work. Sharon and Jason. Yes, we've been gone a long time, so we had a lot of great donations come in while we were away. And if you'd like to donate to the show to keep this on the air, head on over to ketotalk.com and click on the donate button. Or you can go to paypal.me slash ketotalk to make a donation of any amount. It really helps us stay here on the air. 
Yes, thank you very much. So before we hop into the questions today, and we got really awesome questions for you today, I wanted to uh, kind of give a little primer on submitting questions because I've been pouring through a bunch of the ones and we're still kind of in October last year with the questions. So my apologies if we haven't gotten to yours yet. But one of the things that will help us when you submit your question is get to the point. Um, I can't tell you how many times, Adam, I've read through a long email and I go, I can't do anything with that. I, mean, I even try to whittle it down. It's just difficult. So if you'll get right to the point and if you make sure it's related to keto, I'm getting a lot of, you know, what's your recommendations for products for this? And I'm going, that's not really a keto question. So make sure you stay on topic uh, since this is keto talk and be pithy. And your question will probably get on the air a whole lot quicker than not. So housekeeping out of the way. Let's get to the show. <laughs> Diving in. The first question, uh, Rob from Australia. Hi, Jimmy and Adam. I was listening to Dr. Rhonda Patrick on Joe Rogan's podcast, where she mentioned that bile acid, namely deoxycholic acid, is necessary to emulsify fat for absorption in the intestine and that a high consumption of fat over 60% of calories on a regular basis means the body is subject to higher levels of this acid. She stated outright that deoxycholic acid is higher than the usual quantities um, in higher than usual quantities causes damage to the DNA, even going so far as describing it as carcinogenic. Dr. Patrick noted that a ketogenic diet will ultimately result in the failure of the enzymes whose function is to repair DNA and thus will put the person at greater risk for cancer. I'm a type 2 diabetic. I've maintained a ketogenic diet for the past year. I was persuaded to adopt this diet by reading Keto Clarity. Thank you. And I'm regularly in a state of nutritional ketosis. My last HbA1c was 5.2. My fasting insulin was 4. So I can't imagine adopting some other approach despite these concerns about the higher levels of deoxycholic acid required to emulsify the fat. But is Dr. Patrick correct in her assessment of this cancer risk with keto? Thanks for your help, Rob from Australia. So Rob wants to know, is there any concern about very high levels of bile acid from a high-fat ketogenic diet leading to an increased cancer risk? Do you know uh, Rhonda Patrick and her work? I, I don't, actually, no. She's got a pretty popular podcast out there, uh, but she's been on Dave Asprey, Joe Rogan. She's, she's a pretty big deal. But what do you think about her assessment, and is she right or wrong? Well, it's, you know, if, if you look at the data that's been done on um, deoxycholic deoxy, uh, acid, they were all done in, in standard American diets. And right. the, the challenge is that um, when, when you look at what's happening with a high level of bile acid, remember that the, the um, opposing effect from that um, is, occurs with a number of different things. And there's some interesting studies where, where they're looking at, at cancer treatments by giving an, an opposing acid that actually negates the effect of the deoxycholic acid on the, the, the uh, gut cells. The interesting thing that she's missing, and this is where a person who doesn't understand a ketogenic diet misses the boat dramatically, is that there's really two things that are happening that, that, are, that, that don't happen in a standard American diet. First is there's a notably higher level of butyrate that's produced by the, the ketosis and changes the um, the overall gut micro, microbiota or the, the cells within the, within the gut, that higher level of butyrate actually has a protective effect from the bile acid. Secondly, um, the, when, when you are on a true ketogenic diet, you're eliminating or you're reducing fructose. Now, the issue is that fructose um, 
its presence increases uh, glycation end products, which are, are really cancer causing. Um, it increases uric acid. It increases it decreases the presence of glutathione, which actually allows the body to recover from oxidative stress. So when you actually eliminate fructose, which is the, what the high fructose corn syrup is, and you're taking the sugar out of the diet and you're, you're dampering down the liver's um, production of glycation end products, you're dampering down uric acid, and you're actually allowing an increased level of glutathione to occur, you actually dramatically reduce the oxidative stress. So the level that a ketogenic diet would theoretically cause cancer at with a high level of deoxychloric acid is actually changed. It shifts dramatically. So if you're doing a high fat diet with high carb, yes, that's bad and she's correct. But if you're doing a high fat diet with low carb, it, it completely reverses that. And we've seen evidence of that over the last 15 years. In fact, we've seen dramatic evidence of that um, in reduction of of, of uh ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and, and uh, regression and, and no reoccurrences of, of colon cancers in these dietary approaches, which we would expect to see those things get worse immediately if you're, if you're having uh, increased inflammatory changes and damage or um, um, apoptosis of those cells because of the deoxychloric acid. And so, it, it, so if you just look at, and this is the challenge of in looking at science with the, with the high fat, high carb blinders on, you, you miss the boat. When you turn the carb stimulus down and you reduce the production of oxidative stress in, in three or four different ways and you increase the presence of ketones, which have a, a decreased inflammatory response generally in every cell in the body, you actually protect from that. And this is the challenge when people like Dr. Patrick extrapolate uh, information related to fat, for example, within the context of a standard American diet, which you would assume is in most of these studies that she's probably citing. Um, th this is one of the problems is because keto hasn't really been examined that closely in a lot of research. You, you can't make the jump that because it happened within this context of higher carbs, that the exact same thing would happen within the context of a lower carb. So I, I'm surprised I, I didn't hear the podcast with Joe Rogan, but I'm surprised if she did say that a ketogenic diet will ultimately result in the failure of the enzymes whose function is to repair DNA and thus put you at a great, greater risk of cancer. I, I don't doubt that that's what happened, Rob, and, and appreciate you uh, letting us know about this. But. Yeah, this is this is why it has to be corrected when it's put out there, because there's a lot of extrapolation, not directly quoting ketogenic research. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you for that question. And we're going to get to the study portion of the show. This was a really cool study uh, that we had to put out there. Uh, it's from Science News. Rethinking nutrition labeling. Food is not just the sum of its nutrients. The nutritional value of a food should be evaluated on the basis of the foodstuff as a whole and not as an effect for the individual nutrients. This is the conclusion of an international expert panel of epidemiologists, physicians, food and nutrition scientists. Their conclusion reshapes our understanding of the importance of nutrients and their interaction. Now, this was published in the journal American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, not, not some chump change uh, journal article there, Adam. And it's pretty neat because I, I think now this is kind of a great sign that we're moving away from the calorie hypothesis and looking more at what's specifically in foods 
is impacting the body to produce weight gain, to change things that are happening in the body to a disease state from a healthy state. I think this is the first sign that I've seen in the media and in the medical realm where they're starting to pay attention to maybe something that you talk about a lot. It's the hormone stupid, not calories. Oh, very much so. It's a, it's a great start. I'm excited to see that they're doing this, that they're starting to look at saying, you know, well, in this particular food, you have this conglomeration of foods and it's going to cause this effect rather than just isolating, you know, red meat because it has saturated fat. Well, right. then all red meat must be demonized. And so that's, it's a great start to get going. The challenge is that it's not just that food, but it's what you eat that food with. Yes. And so to, 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 to what they, they implied that we could change labels to, um, you know, to, to match this. Well, the challenge is you got to change the label to, you know, so if you have your kale with your bacon grease, that's yes. great. But if you have your kale and your bacon grease and you put that on a slice of bread, that's not so great. Right. So that that's the challenge that arises in, in labeling changes, which was one of the implications they made that, that this could do. Um, I can see that being a, a huge hurdle. But the fact that they're even commenting that, hey, a food and its, subs, its, its conglomeration of nutrients in altogether plays a more significant role than one of the isolated macronutrients in it alone is exciting. So yeah, Jimmy, it's great. Of course, we do run the risk of the people interpreting what uh, what the good combination of, of nutrients in a food is. You know, they, they've demonized saturated fat so long, it's going to be very difficult for any food that would include that to be included as part of a healthy uh, regimen. But maybe it's a good first step. And so I'm anxious to see where this goes from here. But I thought this whole uh, Faculty of Science, University of Copenhagen uh, uh, conglomeration was a good one. So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. All right. We are going to pause here for a quick sponsor and we'll be right back. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oil direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest-fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time, jimmyoliveoil.com. 
Hey, Ketonians, in case you hadn't heard, Carl and Richard from the Two Keto Dudes podcast, along with a bunch of their keto friends, are going to make history by turning the U.S. town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for the weekend of July 15th and 16th. Keto Fest promises to be not only educational, but a whole lot of fun. Jimmy's Fasting Talk co-host, Megan Ramos, and Jimmy will be speaking as part of this event, along with Eric Westman, Jeff Gerber, Ivor Cummins, and a bunch of other great keto thought leaders. In addition to these great talks, they're having an outdoor keto barbecue with a pig picking, live music, walking, running, and cycle tours, and cooking and fitness lessons. They've got the local restaurants and the mayor on board as well. New London in July is a popular destination, so you need to nail down your hotel room and get your tickets as soon as possible. Tickets are on sale now at KetoFest.com. That's KetoFest.com. We're back here with Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Visit our website, KetoTalk.com. You can see all the full show notes for this and every single episode that we do here. And we're up to the first featured question of the day. This one's from Marie. Hi, Jimmy and the Doc. Thanks for a great podcast. I really enjoy the information, particularly when the Doc geeks out on us. That's every week. (laughs) My question for you guys is about hypoglycemia. If a person starting keto experiences a hypoglycemic episode... What's the best way to deal with it? I can do two to three days of a keto diet, but then on the third or fourth morning, I wake up with low blood sugar levels and experience nausea, feeling shaky, unfocused, and sometimes seeing brown spots. My blood glucose dips into the seven or to the forties and resolves after eating an apple or some raisins or some sweet potato. But then I feel like crap for the whole day. I don't get this reaction when I simply eat lower carb with some sweet potatoes or fruit during the day, but I I really want to experience all the full benefits of being ketogenic. I know I can't possibly be the only one who struggles with this. Thanks and keep up the good work, Marie. So Marie's question is this. How do you handle dealing with hypoglycemic episodes when you go on a ketogenic diet and does adding in carbs resolve the issue? Now, it's interesting that she has this issue after two to three days. She's not even close to being keto adapted yet. So I'm wondering if there's something she can do in the interim to get her to that keto adapted state where ostensibly, Adam, that wouldn't happen anymore. The hypoglycemia would resolve. Yeah. And to be honest with you, Marie is explaining something that I think probably would have happened to me had I started keto now rather than, you know, 11, 12 years ago when I started doing it and it was just low carb. Um, I suspect that people like Marie over are, are, are producing pretty significant amounts of insulin at a fast. You know, what I tell people is I normally want to see a fasting insulin level less than five to really be effective. Um, I have patients that are borderline stage three, um, you know, insulin resistant patients, stage three, four, yeah. and they, they're producing 30 to 40 to 50 sometimes um, units of insulin uh, at, at a fast. So wow. I'll do their fasting insulin test and they'll come in and then their, their insulin loads will be 32, 42. These are people that are still producing huge amounts of insulin as they fasted overnight. And so if they're not keto adapted and their body can't absorb the ketones or they're not making the ketones as effectively yet, and that can take up to four to six weeks, sometimes eight weeks in some people, then they will experience that higher level of insulin bottoming out their blood sugar into the 40s and 50s. And they may actually feel significantly hypoglycemic. Um, And so what what I think 
what I tell people is don't use the carbs as the as the cushion. Use protein as a cushion. And this yeah. is where I think in my case, where I was eating a pound of sausage, that extra protein that I took in kept me from bottoming out with my blood sugar because I produce a large amount of insulin. And so I never experienced that. So um, what I tell these people is, is don't worry about your protein. Increase the amount of protein in the fat. Let your body keto adapt that way. Um, you're not going to be as in, in as deep ketosis initially, right. but it's allowing your body to, to, to lower the overall production of insulin so that you don't experience those hypoglycemic episodes. And so that's that's one of the things that allows that to happen. So the body will convert that protein when it needs it, and you won't have that that that, that hypoglycemic episode arise. So it's the glucose effects of eating the protein and the slow glucose effects uh, of the protein that's kind of staving off the hypoglycemia? Yeah. So the body will, it will have a slower conversion of the protein into glucose when it knows it needs it and it, which will, will counteract that high insulin load initially and, and allow her to keto adapt while still not taking in carbs and spiking that insulin dramatically. Yeah. We know that we know the protein will spike insulin a little bit, but we're, we're, the attempt is to try to stop the hypoglycemia from occurring. So we just fudge and add a little more protein into the, into the meals. And that, that usually prevents that. Speaking of trying to find the right mix. <laughs> yeah. Well, Marie, uh, try that and see how you do. And uh, I'd be interested in hearing how adding in protein uh, may stave off this hypoglycemia. And then once she kind of gets to a keto adapted level after, you know, four, six weeks, however long it takes for her, uh, she should be able to shift right back over to a little more fat and moderating down the protein uh, to keep the effects going of the of the keto adaptation, right? Yeah. Now I have had this happen in other people when they're using sweeteners that spike insulin in their evening meal or their yes. evening snack, those sweeteners will do the same thing. So if she's using any of those sweeteners like a sulfame, potassium, xylitol, maltitol, mannitol, any of those type of sweeteners that spike insulin without raising blood sugar, she'll bottom out in the middle of the morning because of the sweetener itself. And so that I, when, when diet Pepsi changed their sweetener, I had a number of patients have this experience start to happen because they switched over to using a sulfame potassium and it doesn't raise the blood sugar, but it but it spikes the insulin, and they would actually see low blood sugars arise three or four hours after they drank their diet co- their diet Pepsi because of that new sweetener they added. And so that was one of the cha- that is one of those challenges in those that are still producing larger amounts of insulin and are in that stage three four insulin resistance range. Doc, that's a great point. Uh, and a lot of people they see it has zero calories, so they don't even think about it meaning anything, but it means everything within this context. Oh yeah, I had a patient email me the other day. Um, one of one of the patients that I see, and he, you know, he's been looking online trying to find which sweetener to use, and he sends me this email saying, "Oh, I found this sweetener. It looks great." Well, the, the base of the sweetener is xylitol, and it's gonna it has about a a fifty percent uh, effect that a tablespoon of sugar does. So it, it, that's the big challenge with with that one is, well, yeah, it's, it says it's great for for diabetics, but it's gonna spike the insulin, and if you're in a ketogenic state, it may make you have hypoglycemic episodes. Well, Marie, thank you for your question. Hopefully that helps you out as well. If you got any artificial sweeteners, uh, that could do it. That could get her down in the 40s when she starts keto. So uh, let us know how you do. We're up to the second featured question of the day from Rob. Hey, guys, the keto community tends to throw around the topic of inflammation a lot without much explanation about what it is. I think I know what it means, but I'm not 100% sure, and I would venture to guess that most people don't. So can you address this on the podcast and how exactly a ketogenic diet helps to lower it? Thanks for your help, 
Rob. So Rob uh, has the philosophical question of the day. We like to throw these in here every once in a while. But what is inflammation, Doc? And why is it the evil boogeyman in our health? And how exactly does keto help to lower inflammation? Well, just like a lot of people demonize insulin, uh, they demonize in, they demonize inflammation. And inflammation is actually essential. If you don't have inflammation, you'll die. You yes. have to have an inflammatory response. The challenge, just like insulin, is you have to have insulin, but if you have too much of it, it, it becomes uh, problematic and actually can lead to damage. Um, I, I assume that this this inflammation be, becoming the boogeyman, um, along with uh, you know insulin becoming the demon, uh, started with, um, and I've heard I hear it a lot from the paleo side of, of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear it from, um, I hear it a lot from the, uh, the, uh, uh the alternative medicine t- side of the world yep. uh, talking about the treatment of inflammation because usually in a person who's eating the standard American diet, all of the inflammation markers are up. And so that's usually what's addressed from many of the medical approaches, even in, in you know, the general Western medicine and it's approached from Eastern medicine. It's also approached from the, the you know, the naturopathic or the, the, uh, the alternative sides. And so they, they're addressing inflammation. And I think what happens is people start to think that inflammation is, is bad and then they, they don't want any inflammation at all. What you have to understand is that when you whack your hand really hard, the, the, in, the, the body, the cells that are damaged produce hormones that actually stimulate an inflammatory response. Don't do that, that by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, don't do that if you avoid it. But <laughs> if you do do it, you, you actually want the inflammation to kick in because that those ins- inflammatory signals, again, they're hormones call the white cells, they call red cells, they call platelets, they they call in the cellular repair mechanisms into that area so that the healing can begin. The problem is that when the inflammation's on too much, when, you're, when your inflammation is, is too high, um, then it ends up becoming destructive towards the tissues. You know, pushing your gas pedal to get you to 65 on the freeway is great, but if you do like some guy blew by me on his motorcycle and you're, you, got that, you got that throttled back all the way to 120 miles an hour down the freeway, that can actually be destructive. So, so we don't want that gas pedal to be that hard. Um, I it, sound, it seems to me that inflammation is becoming the new gluten. Um, you know, we're hearing you know all this gluten stuff was bad. Now it's now inflammation. The issue is that some inflammation is good, but too much is bad, and it, it, it's usually being driven. <clears throat> we know that one of the huge drivers of inflammation is is insulin itself, and the, any of the starches or sugars that drive that process. So uh, a lot of and I, when I'm when I'm reading posts like like. Um, like Rob did, you know, you, you all see someone comment on a, on a ketogenic site saying, yeah, you got to stop this because it causes inflammation or your inflammation is flared up too much. That's why you feel bad. Well, that's not really true. You know, if you if you're truly trying to explain, explain the science behind it, you have to understand what's the hormone that's driving that process and is inflammation a part of that. And it oftentimes is, but it's not so much the inflammation, because if we if we fix the inflammation, you're just basically putting a Band-Aid across the 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 symptoms, we have to treat the underlying issue that's driving that. Something's turning on that hormone causing the inflammation, and that's what we have to identify. So, yes, inflammation is a topic that's thrown around a lot, and I think it's thrown around by the lay public because that's the word that seems to describe what, what that, that something bad is happening. But I, 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 like Rob, don't think it's I don't think it's the word that should be used. I think we should be a little more clear, especially if we're trying to teach people about what the diet's doing and, and, and try to you know, make it um, more scientifically understandable. So what you're saying is the inflammation is merely the manifestation of the real problem, the excess insulin levels. 
Exactly. And so, and, and so what I'll commonly see is I'll see some people who have excess insulin and they have inflammation and their, their arthritis and their gout and their um, rheumatoid arthritis and their, uh, their uh, psoriasis is much worse. And then I'll have another group of people where their insulin's high and they may have a little bit of inflammation, but their obesity is much worse. And then I have another group of people that they're, you know, they have, they have their, their, um, insulin is really high and they'll actually have all these GI manifestations because of the way the hormones affect the gut. And so there's, there's actually five or six different presentations that you'll see when insulin or hormones like insulin are produced in excess and insulin is, and inflammation is one of those byproducts as a manifestation, which is a perfect word for that, uh, to, to describe that something's, something is awry and needs to be fixed. There's so many layers to this because on the outside, people see a heart attack, for example. So then they go back one level and they say, oh, you had high cholesterol. So then you go back one level from that. Oh, you had high inflammation levels. So you go back one level from that. Oh, they had high insulin levels, but it was the insulin all along. But it was just this cascade of events that happened afterward that we don't really get down to the root cause. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Rob, hopefully that helps you out. And uh, sounds like on this show, we're not making inflammation a boogeyman. It's certainly a problem, but it's not the problem, which is what I hear him saying that inflammation seems to be being pushed as the problem. But at, to a layperson, as a layperson, inflammation's easy to understand. It's like the fire. You want to put out the fire. And so it, it's easier than, okay, how, well, how do you describe insulin? It's the, you know, so it's hard to kind of come up with something. Yeah, we, 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 we try to take very complex topics and make them simple. And oftentimes it's easy just to ascribe a, a process or a, a manifestation to it. And then, and then what happens is we end up often blaming it on that manifestation when in reality, we, we know that there's a whole lot more, you know, stuff going on behind this, behind the curtain. Um, but, but we use that term and if we're not careful, sometimes it just comes across as well, inflammation must be the boogeyman and we got to get rid of all, all inflammation. And that's, and so it's a great question and it's a wonderful thing to point out. So, Rob, thank you for your question. And we're up to the third featured question of the day. And this one's from Valerie from Ontario, Canada. Hi, Jimmy and the doc. I love your show. Although I've been at a healthy weight all my life, I've decided to follow a ketogenic diet to have a more positive relationship with food and to balance my moods. Your podcast has greatly inspired me. I recently bought a pack of cultured butter at the grocery store. Only in Canada can you buy cultured butter butter in a grocery store (laughs) here in America. You have to like hunt it down. Uh, After having uh, some for the first time, I noticed that I was craving more of it, which usually never happens when I consume fat. And after doing some research, I discovered that fermented dairy products tend to have a higher glycemic index than non-fermented. What is the impact of cultured butter on the hormones that control hunger and cravings? And could consuming fermented dairy products knock me out of ketosis? Valerie from Ontario, Canada. So uh, an interesting question, and I've never experienced this myself, but does consuming fermented dairy like cultured butter cause a rise in insulin to cause hunger? And will eating this kick me out of ketosis? Well, and it's a great question, and it really comes down to helping people understand, you know, the, the nutrient value of foods, which we, we pointed out in that earlier article. Um, depending on the degree to which you allow the cultures to occur, it, it really takes, uh, you know, increase. Let me well, let's back up and try to explain it. You know, from the perspective of yogurt, you put a culture in, but you're not actually processing all the sugars. The, the culture 
will break down some of those sugars and turn them into proteins or fats, yeah. but there still will be some sugars. And so depending on the, the degree to which the butter was cultured, um, you still may have lactose present in that milk. Ah. Uh, same thing with cottage cheese or with um, with various forms of cheese, American cheese. Um, it's not, the, the, the culture itself didn't process out all the sugar and they stopped the process at a, at a certain point to, to, to induce a certain flavor mm-hmm. or a certain texture. You know, buttermilk is half cultured milk. That's all it is. Uh, and so that's, you know, if you, if you let the, if you let buttermilk culture further, it turns into cultured butter, but, but it's still milk at the milk stage. So depending on how far that culture processes and how long you let those bacteria work on the sugars, that food may kick you out of ketosis and may spike your blood sugar and, and it will have a higher glycemic index because there's still some form of sugar that's left depending on how far they process that. So looking at the back of your, your nutrition label and saying, okay, how many carbs remain in this food <laughs> yeah. when I purchase it is going to give you some indication. So would the uh, presence of the proteins in the butter still also be having somewhat of, of an effect here in this fermented state? It could. Yeah, it could. So if you're culturing and turning it into protein rather than shifting it to fat, um, that also could very well play a role, too. So easily. So to that end, could you culture ghee where you take the proteins out? Um, you could, you probably could. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I don't, I don't use ghee. I've never, I've never uh, is seen amazing, how it's, dude. it's I like know, popcorn I, butter, man. I, I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard that. I, and I've never really used it, used it. It's not something oh. that in my family's culture, we used a lot of, but I know a lot of people use it and they love it. But again, ghee can have, ghee could have some excess protein or excess car, uh, starch in it that, w- or I should say carbohydrate that, um, could kick you out of ketosis. From the lactose, so you get, you're saying, yeah. Yeah, from the lactose that still that still may remain there. So that's that's one of the challenges with f- fermented foods is that there is still a bit of starch or carbohydrate that remains depending on how long the fermentation process occurred. Hmm. Well, Valerie, thank you for that very insightful question. And we'll be right back after these messages. Have you tried Keto Fuel? Go to shopketoshake.com to learn more about Keto Fuel. It's one of the most exciting products to come out in the ketogenic world in a long time. It is a truly low carb, high fat shake that does not overload your body with excessive protein that would kick you out of nutritional ketosis. And the taste is outstanding. Reminds me somewhat of a sweetened almond milk. I've mixed it with water with ice cubes in a shaker, but also blended with heavy cream for a luscious milkshake that tastes like a milkshake, but it's healthy. I'm so glad Keto Fuel was created and I think you're going to love it too. Once again, visit shopketoshake.com to get more information and to place your order for the Keto Fuel. Shopketoshake.com. Have you been interested in trying the new cutting-edge technology of exogenous ketones but didn't know where to get started? Let me introduce you to Perfect Keto. Visit perfectketo.com jimmy and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto was created by a functional medicine clinician who developed this unique formula for maximum efficacy. It's great tasting and the most affordable exogenous ketone supplement you can find that raises blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimolar to help increase mental focus, boost your energy, and commence fat burning. It does not contain any soy, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, binding agents, or anything that doesn't directly improve your health. The synergistic power of a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat, ketogenic diet 
with Perfect Keto Exogenous Ketones will have your body running optimally. Perfect Keto is available in delicious chocolate sea salt and peaches and cream flavors. Each serving comes with 11.38 grams of high-quality beta-hydroxybutyrate for maximum ketone boosting while adding in magnesium, potassium, cocoa, stevia, and vitamin C for extra micronutrition. Again, try Perfect Keto for yourself at perfectketo.com jimmy and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto. We're back here with Keto Talk, and we are here for the Keto Talk mailbox. This was a really good one, Adam, that I couldn't help but throw into the show today. Hi, Jimmy and Adam. I just lost my grandfather to pancreatic cancer. He chose to have no artificial nutrition through a feeding tube and IV in the last few days of his life. I believe that this allowed him to go into ketosis and eased his passing. I found a reference to ketosis being beneficial at the end of life in an American Medical Association publication. In researching this further, I found the following statement in a publication called The Education for Physicians on End-of-Life Care Handbook uh, put out by the AMA. Here's what it said. Educate families about the studies that demonstrate that parenteral or enteral feeding of patients at the end of their lives neither improves symptom control nor lengthens life. Help them understand that anorexia may be protective as the resulting ketosis can lead to a greater sense of well-being and diminish pain. So my questions for you guys is this, is this common knowledge in the medical community in general? We were never told this by any of my grandfather's medical caretakers and instead were encouraged to give him a boost, which has 20 to 30 grams of sugar per serving right to the very end. And in light of this, could exogenous ketones have helped him ease the pain more and remain lucid enough to engage with the family a period of time longer before passing? I really hope that you can share this about this on Keto Talk. At least this community may be able to help a dying loved one by not pushing sugary drinks. Uh, And then when the nurses and doctors uh, insist, you have an answer. Or possibly asking for no dextrose in the IV, especially if the patient has already said that they're ready to pass. It may be helpful to share the AMA reference with family members and caregivers and explain what ketosis is and that the patient may not be feeling hunger. Those of us who have experienced ketosis know this firsthand. It takes courage to go against the mainstream thinking, especially in this world of medicine and health. I appreciate that you do it every day with your podcasts, blogs, and books. Thanks so much. Christy. So Christy had a a great question. Is it common knowledge about this AMA promoting ketosis for a greater sense of well-being and pain reduction at the end of life? I had never heard of it before. Well, to answer Christy Christy directly, no, it's not common knowledge. Um, There are a number of end of life docs, the hospice docs that that work in this field and are aware of the fact that um, when a person stops eating at the end of life because they either can't due to their cancer or whatever the cause of that um, end stage of life is, uh, makes it difficult for them to eat. They they know that when they shift into a ketogenic state, um, they actually feel better. There's there's the ketones actually allow a little more more clarity of mind. 
Uh, there's a slight euphoric effect which dampers the pain in general. And so that that is known by many of the hospice docs that I've talked to. Um, but they it's often referred to just as a, it's it's the end of any end of life as the person's getting close. They, they because they're not eating, they hit starvation. They shift into ketosis and they actually feel better just before they pass. That that is known by a number of the hospice docs. Now in general across the board with all people who deal with end of life, they may or may not be aware of that. Um, and so, and, and if you have a person that's fairly lucid and, and talks and is comfortable in, in, in that end stage process and may be able to eat, they may be encouraging them to take in sugars or to, you know, to help preserve their energy levels. Yeah. What, what we, what we know is that we, we do know, however, that, you know, from those of us that do ketosis, we know that people feel better. They have less pain. They, they're more clear headed when they're in a ketogenic state. So, um, it, it's, it's, it's not an, it's not a, it's not wrong to approach it that way. And some physicians will, will, will do that and may uh, talk about that. But oftentimes families are so concerned about the whole process itself that yeah. whether a person's in ketosis or not is never even mentioned. But I do know that many of the hospice docs are familiar with it. They just may not talk about it uh, in that approach. And really uh, at that point in time, um, most physicians and the nursing staff are attempting to make the, both the family and the, the patient as comfortable uh, and make those last few days in, in life as pleasant as possible. So it's not something that's usually talked about um, in general, but, it, it, but we are aware of it uh, to some degree. It's not huge that I'm aware of, but it, it is aware, people are aware of it. Um, the AMA doesn't promote it. It just happens to be in some of the literature there because people have asked the question. Um, and then that, so, so, uh, that's one among many protocols that may be used at the end of life or during those hospice periods. Um, and so, so, but they'll often do it. They'll often approach it very, very individually based on the family and the patient's desires and, you know, and what the actual process is that's causing that end of life, uh, uh, point to, to occur. Yeah. That's a long winded answer, but <laughs> you know, in general, most answers no. but, but a lot of the hospice docs are aware of it now, whether they understand why and how, uh, really comes down to whether they understand the process of ketosis and what it actually does at a nutritional level. I know she asked a question about exogenous ketones. Yeah. Whether uh, those would have helped or not. Yeah, theoretically, they, they could be helpful, but many patients, like those that have pancreatic cancer, they'll actually get more nauseated just by eating, and yeah. so that, that can be a problem in trying to get those up to, in, into the stomach. And, and most, pe- most people are placed on uh, what are called enteral or parenteral feeding, where you're either feeding them through a, a stomach tube or through the IVs. Uh, and, and what they've shown is that you know feeding a person in that stage really doesn't help them much beyond a certain point, and the doctor knows where that is, and he, he or she helps to make that determination. But it's a really good question. Um, I, I know that uh, I know that many of the patients that I have I have worked with in the hospice status that end, end up going on to pass um, because their appetite diminishes. They actually do have a period of clarity uh, before that where they they're able to be lucid enough to talk with the family and and make some make some of their wishes known. And so uh, and and you know how much ketosis plays a role in that I suspect may be significant. Although we no no one's usually ever checking it to see you know are you in ketosis or not. Yeah. It's interesting they described it as uh, uh, anorexia may be protective, which I'm assuming what they're saying is they're not eating any food at all. It's called it, fasting. Uh, it is. It's called fasting. Ketones. Yeah. 
Well, and a lot of times you'll have patients on hospice that'll go five or six days and have eaten nothing. Yes. Maybe sip some water or chew some ice just to, you know, just to stay a little bit hydrated. Um, and it, so, and it, from the perspective that they're teaching patients, it's, well, they're anorexic now. They have no appetite. Um, again, anorexia is just a, a description of the, the symptom is all it is. Right. And so, but, but they are, after a day or two, they're in ketosis for sure. Oh, heavy and, ketosis and, by day three, yeah. four. I've seen four and five by day, by day three, four of a fast. Easy, easy. Yeah. Now, these patients are also not often not taking any protein whatsoever. They're not taking any electrolytes. So they're actually shifting into a starvation stage at yeah. some point fairly quickly, too. And and so if the and you know in regards to the question, if the person's lucid enough to understand, you know, putting them into a more of a prolonged fasting state may actually help them feel better. At least, uh, you know, it's not necessarily going to prolong life. And that's yeah. what they were blind by the science. But it may actually help them feel better during that period. So I wonder if the families of these patients like this, if you could uh, push back and say, hey, I'd like to take them off of that um, feeding. Uh, Is that something that uh, patients, families, I guess they have to have legal power to do that. But assuming the the people that had the power of attorney or whatever it's called for that, uh, could they make those decisions or do they have to trust the medical field for that? Well, a lot of times, um, you know, the, the patient may have stipulated, this is what I want. And so the, the, the physician will attempt to follow the wishes of the patient if they were stipulated. If the wishes were never stipulated, then usually there's a medical power of attorney. And that usually rolls to a son or a daughter or a family member, um, a spouse, right. uh, you know, that, that can then make those decisions. Um, and and that then can be stipulated. And the physicians are usually on in, in hospice or in end of life uh, care in that regard. The, the point at that point in time is not to cure the disease. It's not to uh, change the disease. It's really to, to make the patient's last days as comfortable yeah. and as, as productive as possible with family, with, with what that with whatever the wishes of that patient were. Right. And so in many cases, the, the doctor is going to be very willing to try to help help navigate some very um, unclear and sticky waters uh, that most people are very that most people are afraid of uh, they, they they're, they're very leery of and they don't know what they can and can't ask for so it is some it, it's it's uh, my suggestion is if you understand what ketosis is and you come to this point um, have a frank conversation with the doctor and ask what the doctor thinks about it and you know what what's the pros and cons of doing it um, and, and and get the doctor to kind of guide you through that process um, but there's no you you have the ability as a patient or as a kid as the medical power of attorney to request certain treatments or not tr- have certain treatments um, because, you know, that, that's your, that's your right and prerogative. And if he says, what's ketosis, uh, go r- fun, run and find another doctor. <laughs> <laughs> then you know, you won't get a good, you won't get an answer. You won't get a you. good answer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the uh, end of life uh, care that Kevin, uh, my brother Kevin had in those last few days. Yeah. They did everything just to make him comfortable until he passed. So, um, they do yeoman's work, so I don't want to take away from any of those hospice care people because they do really good work. And uh, Christy, we're sincerely sorry for your grandfather, losing your grandfather, but uh, hopefully uh, this helps some other people. And thank you for bringing this to our attention about this uh, handbook from the AMA. Like I said, I had I had never heard of that before, Adam, so I'm glad to know that, that you knew about it um, and that it's out there. That's That's good. Yeah, it exists. But yeah, and those 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 workers are heroic and we, we, we really do appreciate all they do. And, and there's so much to know during that period of time that it's often hard to to get all those pieces uh, out to people in that process. That's right. 
Well, we're up to the iTunes reviews portion of the show. We have three of them here today. EB Podcast. I subscribe to all of Jimmy's podcasts. Each one provides great info. He's an excellent interviewer. I feel he always tries to give factual yet unbiased information. The doc explains sophisticated scientific concepts in a very understandable way. Well, sometimes we have to translate for him. But yes, uh, thank you for all the great work and for getting the word out. Uh, the next one is from Your Supergirl. This is such a great podcast. After years of being paleo and first subscribing to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show, I was thrilled to find this podcast as I was switching over to keto. I've begun intermittent fasting along with my new keto lifestyle, doing really well. Uh, I've had a five-day fast. I'm a 39-year-old mother to five children. Oh, God bless you. And have never felt or looked better. I really love the banter back and forth between Jimmy and Adam. And the info I learn with each and every podcast is incredible. Keep up the good work, you guys. Jessica. So thank you, Jessica. And the last one, Honey Badger 37 I start each morning with Jimmy and the Doc. I'm sorry. <laughs> Knowledge is power. And they've taught me so much on this journey to take back my health. I love that they give you the science of why and honor us as individuals. We all react so differently to food, stress, etc. I love that Jimmy and the doc help us to understand that their humor and fun personalities make the show a perfect start to a great day. Thank you for both entertaining me and educating me. So three great uh, uh, iTunes reviews this week. So thank you guys. Head on over to iTunes and you can type in Keto Talk, Jimmy Moore, Adam Nally. You will find the show and you can leave us your review as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. So that's it for this episode 70 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. 70, we're getting real old now. (laughs) Time to pull out the ketogenic cane. I got to go find my tea so I can have some dinner now. (laughs) Ketotalk.com is our website. And don't forget to engage with your fellow uh, 70-year-old ketonians at ketotalkfb.com. There's a bunch of people in there now. 13,600. What the? That's awesome, man. That's awesome. It's amazing. So until next Thursday, Doc, we'll see you then. See you then. You've been listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, then head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keto Talk. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.